Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Galatians 4. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. And we'll read the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless our meditations this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... It is uh, a light to our path, that it is truth, Father, that in it we uh, can learn of you and see you. So, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would help us to understand, that you would uh, illumine our minds, that we might believe and rest in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Galatians chapter 4, a little bit of an introduction to get, our, get us back into context this morning. The book of Galatians, as I've said, every lesson is about the doctrine of justification. Justification is, is God's declaration that we are holy, and that declaration is given to us um, by faith. And even that faith is a gift from God, but we are justified on the basis of faith alone, not faith plus works, or certainly not by works themselves. And that's, Paul has been pounding that topic because Judaizers are coming, we're coming into the Galatian churches and trying to get them just to add a little bit of the law to their doctrine of justification. And so Paul uh, pulls all the stops and is very um, fatherly in his exhortation to them. And so in the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul has explained Abraham, Moses, and Christ. And he's used those to refute the arguments of the Judaizers. So he brings in Abraham. What did Abraham receive? He received the promise of salvation, right? And, and how was that reckoned to him as righteousness by faith, right? So the promise was given to Abraham, 
and then the law was given through Moses. And the big thing that the Apostle Paul wanted to um, teach the um, Galatians at that point was the law did not nullify the promise given to Abraham. Right? The law came in, and it was not, it was not an alternate to the promise. The promise was still in effect, and the law came in to provoke, to expose, to reveal sin, okay? And that is useful because coming to a conviction of sin is what drives us to the cross. And so, the promise is given to Abraham. The law comes in through Moses. It does not nullify the promise. The promise is still in effect. And then Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, right? Christ's work of redemption, the final sacrifice, right? He fulfills the promise. And so uh, a lot has changed when Jesus comes in the flesh, right? A lot of the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament law is completely superfluous. It's even more than superfluous. To follow it would be a sin. Strangely enough, God commanded it, but if we went back to it, that would be sin for us because um, the ceremonial law is abrogated, it is removed, it is done away with in Jesus Christ. Everyone whom the law drives to Christ inherits the promise which God made to Abraham. Okay? Everyone whom the law drives to Christ inherits the promise which God made to Abraham. Sort of a summary of what, what has proceeded. Now, Galatians 4.1, another argument. And he uses an analogy here. What is the analogy that he uses? Do we, do we know what an analogy is? Um, what's that? Yeah, it's true. Go ahead, David. Yes, well, no, no, that's not the primary metaphor. The primary metaphor is what? An heir. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, an heir that is under custodians. So a young heir, right? That, that's key to understanding this passage, right? An heir that is under management. An heir that has a father who's, who's promised him everything, right and has the inheritance but he's young he's he's not ready to exercise the responsibility that he has as an heir right he's 7 years old let's say 
And he's just not, he can't, he can't manage his father's estate at that point, even though his father has given it to him. And so what do they do up until the point where the young man has enough um, education and wisdom? They place him under guardians and managers until that date set by the father. And um, even though he's owns everything, everything's his, the entire state is his, he has the same sort of function and status as a slave on that estate, that heir. He's not ready to exercise what he has, okay? So that's what, that's what Paul says. As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he owns everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father so also we, okay, so he gives you that picture, young heir under guardians. And he says, so also we, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Okay, so who's we and what are the elemental things of the world? <laughs> Please tell me because I'm not sure. I have, I have a take, right? Um, <clears throat> again, I, I think at this point he is, he is addressing the Jews, okay? He is trying to get the Judaizers who are Jews to understand just their position, okay? And he's trying to get them to comprehend the law, right? And the place of the law in, in redemptive history. And so... Um, He's speaking of the Jews here, so also we, while we were children, were, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And so, um, that is Israel before Christ came. Okay? That's Israel before Christ came. They're, they're um, under a guardian. They, they can't yet exercise the, the full rights of the heir because they're under the guardianship. And in this case, it's the guardianship of what? The law, right? Particularly and mostly that ceremonial law, right? The, all those rules and regulations having to do with cleanliness and worship was the guardianship that they were under until Christ came, and then what happens? That guardianship goes away, right? Because we have the fullness and the fulfillment of all those laws in Christ, and so now we're, we're able to understand and exercise our full inheritance at the point of Christ coming in. Okay, you had that look on your face like you had something wise and thoughtful to say. Um. So that's so he's describing Israel before Christ came. They were under the guardianship of the law, and the law was like the child's manager. It was telling them everything that they must do. It was telling them, it was holding their hand and teaching them everything they must do. And when does that guardianship end? Well, at the date set by the father. And that's why when Jesus came in the flesh and died on the cross, it's called the fullness of time. That was the date set by the Father. Right? So there's this like straight analogy between these two things. 
And then, so that's, that's describing, that's describing Israel under guardianship of the law. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And, um, but what about verse 3? Um, how does that relate to the Gentiles? Well, they didn't have the law. But what were they kept in bondage by? Well, they too were kept in bondage by the elemental things of the world, right? So there may be a double meaning to this phrase, elemental things of the world. Um, <clears throat> so first, there's this kind of parallel between the guardianship of the law and the status of Gentiles under the bondage of the elemental things of the world. What do you know about Gentile religion during the first century? Anybody have any inkling of what was going on? Trees and rocks and rivers. Made, uh, made statues in the shape of four-footed animals. And, right? Worshipping in the creation rather than the creator. Okay. Is that what you were going to say, Sandy? Good. Fire. Again, that's to, that's to focus on what's created, right, rather than the creator. And, and so these elemental principles of the world um, uh, could be, you know, what, what the Apostle Paul is uh, coaxing out here. The Jews had advantages, though, over the Gentiles, didn't they? What sort of advantages did the Jews and Israel have over the Gentiles? Was it that they had the, the Jews had the law and the Gentiles did not have the law? Well, they had the written law, which helps, but the Gentiles had the law written on the heart, so they all had the law, right? The conscience is indicative that God writes the law on hearts, but... They had the oracles of God, right? They had the Word of God. They had it clearly written. It wasn't just vaguely written on the heart. It was written on stones, right? And written in the, uh, the scrolls of the Scripture. You were going to say something. Okay. Who led the Jews through the wilderness? Christ did. Right? Yeah, I mean, they saw, they saw something, right? They saw the, you know, the, the cloud and the, the fire, and um, they, you know, verbally were receiving 
warnings from God and the prophets were sent to this nation, right? I mean, they had all of these privileges. And yet, if you make the law, if you make the law the way of salvation, you have just made it an elemental principle of the world. It is no better than a druid licking a tree. I'm sure they did that as part of their ritual, you know, ritual work in the forest of northern Scotland. Um, you, but, but do you see that? I mean, it, the elemental principles of the world are all the things outside of faith that we think giving ourselves to will make us righteous before God. Everything outside of faith in Jesus Christ is the elemental principle of the world. For the Jews, that was the law, believe it or not. And for the Gentiles, it was whatever their imagination came up with. It was a pantheon of Roman gods, right? It, it, was, it was the worship of statues. It was the it was doing obeisance to the earth, not to the Creator. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we don't, we, we don't have a good impression of that. Um, would that we could go back in time and see a thousand bulls slaughtered. It just would have been graph, just horrendous. It would have stunk. It, it just would have been so graphic. And we really would have learned about our sin if we had seen the graphic death of animals, right? But even worse, the death of Jesus on the cross which we gaze upon through the eyes of faith and in Scripture. But, but yeah, it, it was, it was um, basic, it was elemental, it was earthy in that sense. Um, but the Jews, they have this advantage. They've had all these revelation from God specifically. The Gentiles in Ephesians 2 are described as without hope and God. But both were held in bondage by the elemental principles of their religion. Jews mistook the law as a way of salvation. Gentiles worshipped nature and the creation rather than the creator. And so I think what, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's sort of saying um, He's pulling in the Jews and the Gentiles together and saying, you're all condemned outside of Jesus Christ, right? And you've all been worshiping the elemental principles of, of uh, the world, right? And, and if that's the case, Jews, why in the world would you want a Gentile to become a Jew like that? I think that's what he's saying. I mean, why would you want him, why would you want Gentiles to undergo circumcision, for instance, 
and, and participate in what is an elemental principle of the world, mistaking, mistaking the law as this sort of um, sacrificial system that's going to um, put God in your debt. Which it never did that because it had to be repeated year after year and was not able to forgive sins. Later, the Apostle Paul will say that the elemental things of the Jews were days and months and seasons and years. Right? Again, all instituted by God, not meant to be a way of salvation, meant to bring order, but not meant to be justifying works. Okay? God instituted all those things, but none of which God instituted as a way of earning their salvation. So what were the Jews and the Gentiles doing? They were all pursuing salvation as if it were by works. Everyone. I guarantee you, if you don't have a genuine Christian that you're witnessing to, they are attempting to work out their salvation by their works, okay? They think that the means of being saved is by doing work. And that, according to the Apostle Paul, is anathema. We are not saved by our works. And so, um, that being the case, not being saved by works... The law comes in and just shows us how, how terrible our works actually are, condemning us. It just comes in and kills us and slays us and condemns us and tells us we've done wrong and tells us that our thoughts are off and tells us, it tells us all those things. And then eventually, when the Holy Spirit is working, all of that work of the law in condemning you convinces you that your only hope is if someone saves you. I can't do it. My works are filthy. The law condemns me. God, what am I supposed to do? And that's where Jesus steps in and says, believe in me. And it becomes, you know... Um, Becomes obvious. I want to share with you something that um, a guy named Martin Luther, you've heard of him, said about this phrase, elemental principles of the world. He says this, learn therefore to speak of the law, get this, learn therefore to speak of the law as contemptuously as you can. in the matter of justification, right? Careful addition of that phrase. The law is contrary to faith, okay? And in the matter of justification, we should disparage, we should cast all kinds of insults at the law. Even though the law is good and there's a place for it in sanctification, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about justification. 
okay? He says, learn therefore to speak of the law as contemptuously as you can in the matter of justification. And then he goes to the example of the apostle doing so. By the example of the apostle, which calls the law the rudiments of the world, pernicious traditions, the strength of sin, and the ministry of death. And so all those scriptures are popping into your mind, right? That's what the Apostle Paul called the law. It's the ministry of death. That's to speak of it contemptuously. Right? It kills, it kills, it kills, it kills. And of course, we need to be killed before we understand that we need a Savior. He goes on, he says, For if you suffer the law to bear rule in your conscience when you stand before God, wrestling against sin and death, then is the law indeed nothing else but a sink of all evils, heresies, and blasphemies. For it does nothing but increase sin, accuse and terrify the conscience, threaten death, and set forth God as an angry judge which rejects and condemns sinners. Here, therefore, if you be wise, banish this stuttering and stammering Moses far from you with his law. And any wise, let not his terrors and his threatenings move you. Here, let him utterly be suspected unto thee as an heretic, as an excommunicate and condemned person, worse than the Pope and the devil himself, and therefore not to be heard or obeyed in any case." And so you read something like that, and you're like, okay, Luther, man, talk about hyperbole. That's dangerous hyperbole. And I say, well, he qualified in this matter of justification. When talking about justification, the law is disgusting and terrible and wicked. If you are going to it as the means of pleasing God, there's only one way to please God, and that is to despair of yourself and put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, I can't be righteous. I need you to give me righteousness, and if you don't, I'm condemned to hell. That's Galatians, okay? The Judaizers were like, oh no, Moses is great. Moses is so great. We can just you know, let's do circumcision. Maybe we'll, we'll wash our hands before we eat. and Maybe we'll do a few things here and there. You know, Moses is cool. It's really good. It is how we're saved. And so you see Luther reacting as the Apostle Paul did and said, saying, no, it's, it's death. It actually kills you. And, and that's its purpose. So I'm going to have to do like a 45-part series on sanctification after we get done with the book of Galatians just to reorient us. But in the matter of justification, how can you be right with God? There is only one answer, and it's very simple. It's by faith in Christ, okay? But I found that that statement, you know, at least Luther says stuff. You read modern scholars, and they're so nuanced, you never know what they're saying. It's like, okay, now, now that's helpful, right? Helpful. 
It's very helpful. All right, so I don't know where we are in the passage. 4, 1, 3. So also, we were children. We were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, But God, right? But when the fullness of time came, right? That, that day appointed by God, the Father, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under that terrible law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, Right? So what is this fullness of time? What does that mean? And, and I've already said that fullness of time, the primary meaning of that phrase is the day appointed by God for the Son to be incarnate, to live, and to die on the cross. Specifically, I think it points to the death of Jesus on the cross. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole last week of Christ's life. Right. Yep. Yes. Yep. Um, agree. Does anybody know who Alexander the Great is? You ever heard of him? What did Alexander the Great do? Yeah, he conquered the world and he, and he gave the whole world basically a common language, right? He Hellenized that whole area and so everybody in all the countries were speaking Greek. Well, isn't that fortuitous, right? That the whole world would be Hellenized and be speaking Greek. Um, what had the Romans done around the time of Christ? Alexander the Great preceded, you know. What did the Romans do? Yeah, they, they bought political stability and transportation, right? One, I mean, one of the wonders of the world, right? The transportation, the infrastructure that they built, and then their political reign um, was also uh, brought structure and order. What happened to the Jews? What happened to the Jews around this time, time of Christ? Yeah, they were spread out, right? The diaspora had happened preceding this time. So there are synagogues all over the place. Not just in the promised land, but all over the place. You have synagogues that have been set up. 
And so you take, you take all of these, right, the Greek language and culture, the Roman peace and politics and the roads, the Jewish synagogues that were, were spread a, a, around, and there's a general, I think we see it in Scripture, but I think we could go to pagan sources, and there's a general dissatisfaction with religion entirely, right? The, the Roman gods are a joke, right? And the, the Pharisees and the Jews are like, you know, um, the, the prophets have been silent, you know, and there have been these fake messiahs that have been popping up before Christ, and here's Christ, another one, you know. And so there, there's all this religious discontent, but all this structure put in place. And in some sense, I think the fullness of time points toward how God orchestrated the world, right? So that the, the preaching of His Son and the coming of His Son would have um, greatest effect or um, would meet with uh, the particular um, resistance and no, non-resistance. Uh, but mostly, I think that phrase, fullness of time, speaks to the, the date that God had set, that he would come into the world. But there's a reason he came in 2,000 years ago and not yesterday. There's a reason he didn't do it 2,000 years before that, right? There was, there was something about that time that God said, this will be the time when you will follow my plan my son. Yep. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yep. It's the focal point of all of history. And so, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Okay, so uh, the first thing to mention is God sent forth His Son. The Son was obeying somebody when He came. And the Son was obeying His Father. He, he was following His Father's um, authority. Right, And then, born of a woman points toward his real humanity. Right? He was a real human. Sent, sent also implies pre-existence, right? Because he was sent from the council of God, you know, before, before uh, even creation. And so, born of a woman, real humanity, born under the law... So, born at that particular moment in redemptive history, right? The law is what predominates the Jewish religion, the Pharisaical religion. And then, verse, and also, he, he lived according to the law, right? He was born under the law in the sense that he uh, kept the law. And why did he have to keep the law? He's God, and God cannot break the law. God cannot sin, right? So it'd be against his own nature to do so, his impeccability, 
So it would ungod God if he were to um, break the law, but he also was headed toward a cross where he would be a sacrifice, and you don't put blemished animals in the sacrifice. You put unblemished lambs in the sacrifice. And so he's unblemished by sin at all. He's uncorrupted, untainted. He's the perfect lamb of God, right? And so that's part of the the reason he must keep the law. And so he's born under the law, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So why was Jesus sent? Redemption. What's redemption? What is redemption? Buying out of slavery. Buying something, someone out of bondage. Right? So when you are redeemed, you are freed from bondage. Okay? And so he came to redeem those who were under the law. Right? Weighed down, condemned, right? Convicted and condemned this ministry of death. He came along and redeemed us out of that. Out of sin. And so those in bondage, you know, he, he rescued those in bondage to whatever work they thought would save them. Again, if the, Jews were under the, if the Jews who were under the law needed to be redeemed, then there is nothing to be gained by the Gentiles becoming Jews. And so retrograde, it's not the right, the right action. And then verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's another reason for the redemption, right? You know this is the greatest evidence for the work of God in you, the quiet inward witness of the Spirit. Do you have that quiet inward witness of the Spirit? Not tongues, not miracles, not anything other than a quiet inward witness by which we meditate on the amazing glory of Almighty God being our Father. Do you have that always as a source of encouragement? Well, then you may be an adopted son of God. You might be in the household. You might be a member of that family, right? If you see and know him as a father, that's what the Spirit reveals to us, that we are adopted sons of the Father. Yes, women are sons. Women receive inheritance. This is... This is um, this is egalitarian when it comes to justification, okay? Um, Abba means father. Pater means father. Abba is Aramaic. Pater is Greek. Why in the world would, would Jesus in Mark 14... And then Paul several times uses this phrase, Abba, Father. Well, it's pretty simple. In this book, um, a father to the Jews, a father to the Gentiles. Abba, Father. Abba, 
That's the language the Jews spoke, Aramaic. Pater, that's the Greek. That's Gentiles. And so I don't think we, you know, you've heard like daddy. No, it's not that. We don't, I mean, to call God Father in the first place is an incredible um, privilege and joy. And yes, they, they encompass that sentimental emotion already. You don't, we don't need to diminish it further. To call God a Father is an amazing privilege. But I think he's, he's saying, he's bringing together these strands of Jew and Gentile in this whole book. And so when he says, Abba, Father, he's like, Abba, Jew, you know, Father of Jews, Father of Gentiles. Brings it together. Look at Mark 14.36. Jesus uses the same phrase. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. And, and it's interesting that he would use that there. And I think perhaps that's where the sentimental sort of um, view of that verse came into play. Um, you know, sort of a, a heartfelt. But again, I, I, think, I think there he knows who's listening. He's got Jews and Gentiles. He's got Romans and he's got Herodians and he's got Jews and chief priests listening and around. And so he uses both of those terms to indicate that God is a father of all, not just the Jews and not just the Gentiles. All right, verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Right? This should blow your mind. It's wonderful when we inherit earthly wealth from, from family. It's helpful. It's encouraging. Um, it's dangerous. It leads to all kinds of fights at funerals. But the magnitude of being an heir of Almighty God who spoke the worlds into existence, to be an heir and a fellow heir with the Lord Jesus Christ, what privileges you have there, what glories you have there, what incredible experiences you have ahead of you, dwelling in the presence of God, right? Not being consumed by His wrath, Peace in eternity without sin being present. Is that the inheritance you want or do you really just want money? What motivates you? Right? What, what inheritance would you rather have? Again, Luther. But this far passes all man's capacity that he calls us heirs. Not of some rich and mighty prince, not of the emperor, not of the world, but of Almighty God, the creator of all things. This, our inheritance then, is unspeakable. And if a man could comprehend the great excellency of this matter, that he is the son and heir of God, and with a constant faith believe the same, this man would esteem all the power and riches of all the kingdoms of the world as filthy dung in comparison of his eternal inheritance." 
He would abhor whatsoever is high and glorious in the world. Yea, the greater the pomp and glory of the world is, the more would he hate it. To conclude, whatsoever the world most highly esteems and magnifies, that should be in his eyes most vile and abominable. For what is all the world with all his power, riches, and glory in comparison of God whose son and heir he is? Furthermore, he would heartily desire with Paul to be loosed and to be with Christ, and nothing could be more welcome unto him than speedy death, which he would embrace as a most joyful peace, knowing that it should be at the be the end of all his miseries, and that through it he should attain to his inheritance. Yea, a man that could perfectly believe this should not long remain alive, but should be swallowed up incontinent with excessive joy. Amen? We'll stop there. Heirs of God. Think about that. Heirs of God. What an inheritance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work for us. Thank you that Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God. Thank you that he died, that we might be righteous. And Father, we, we believe. We believe. We rest in your Son. He is our righteousness. Father, we pray that you would fill our minds with the delights and glories of contemplating the fact that we have an inheritance laid up for us that's not perishable, it's not corruptible, but it's eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.